0: Hello, so, hello, welcome to Radio Cachimbona, a podcast hosted by me, Yvette, a Salvatorian Cachimbona, growing, healing, and storytelling in southern Arizona. This podcast follows my legal journey as a first generation professional navigating civil rights litigation in these southern Arizona borderlands. This podcast is an audio archive of all of the fierce resistance occurring in these southern borderlands. As a daughter of Central American migrants, this podcast also seeks to uplift the voices of Central Americans. Today, I am super excited to have Lacey Abrego. She is a professor of Chicana Chicano Studies at the University of California at Los Angeles. She is a Salvadoran American herself and wrote the book Sacrificing Families, Navigating Laws, Labor, and Love Across Borders. Super excited to have her here today, and I hope that you all enjoy the podcast. If you like this content and you'd like to support my work, you can become a patron. For $5 a month, you will get two extra episodes a month, exclusive access to amazing interviews like this one, as well as other lit reviews, discussions that I have with women of color over timely texts like sacrificing families. Another way to support is to leave us an Apple podcast review. It helps so much with visibility. You can also follow us at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you all and hope you enjoy this interview. Today, I'm very excited to have Lacey Abrego on the podcast to talk about her book, Sacrificing Families Navigating Laws, Labor, and Love Across Borders. Very excited because she is the professor and director of graduate studies at UCLA in the Chicana and Chicano studies department. She is a Salvadoran American herself and wrote this book focusing on inequities between transnational families and focusing specifically on the roles of gender in migration for Salvadorian families in particular. And so I just wanted to say thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I usually start off every podcast with the question of how your week is going and what you've done for self-care this week. If you haven't done good self-care, then you can also say what you plan to do for the upcoming week.
1: I guess my self-care these days is taking some time in the evenings to be outside in our driveway playing with my kids. And some days I get some yoga in as well.
0: That's great. I think that that's one of the sort of silver lining linings of the COVID nineteen pandemic is that people who are privileged enough to be able to work from home and do their childcare as well are getting to spend more time with their family. So I'm glad that you're able to spend that quality time with your kids.
1: Yeah, yeah. Those are the moments I am thankful for right now.
0: Great. So if you don't mind, I think we can just delve into the book. Okay. All right. So in the introduction of the book, you talk about how this book is intervening in the field of sociology in an important way because historically people in the field have studied Internal discrepancies or inequalities within migrant families, like the differing experiences of parents and children within a family unit, but you claim in the book that not enough has been paid attention to inequalities and in well-being between families from distinct countries of origin. And I wanted to ask you, what brought you to this research? You're a Salvadoran American, and so that you obviously have that personal connection, but also wanted to ask about how you came to this question of migration and family identity and gender in particular.
1: Thanks for that question. Yeah, I was born in El Salvador. I, I consider myself salvadorena i I'm certainly based in the U.S., and that's that's a, an important reality that I can't ignore, but mm-hmm. I grew up in a family in which I heard stories about family separation quite a bit, particularly because my mom grew up in a transnational family. Her mother migrated to the u.s in the 60s and my mom was just a kid then and she spent all of her childhood really wishing to be with her mother again and she told us so many stories of how painful that was to not have her parents both her her parents were gone but she especially missed her mom and and so it I thought this was something that was maybe unique to my family, but as I got older, I started to hear similar stories among Salvadorans. And then it wasn't until I started doing my research for the master's thesis that I was working with undocumented youth from different countries. And In talking to them and not even asking them about these experiences, they always shared the time that they were apart from their parents. In a lot of these families, the mothers, fathers had left, maybe sometimes just months prior to them, sometimes years. Mm -hmm. It always left a deep impact on their lives. They talked about how difficult it had been to not recognize a parent, how difficult it had been to reestablish emotional relationships with them, even years later, and that made me realize whether you're from Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, this is not uncommon. And I wanted to better understand how these experiences played out for people, how they understood them as parents and as children. And that's how I, I came to the project.
0: That's really great. And why the focus in El Salvador in particular, apart from your own kind of family story? Because as you've mentioned, family separation is present in a lot of communities. You mentioned Nicaragua and Guatemala. So what, wanted, what made you want to focus on the Salvadorian population in particular as a lens into thinking about inequities between transnational families?
1: So there were a few things. Certainly, there's, I think, the beginning of a lot of research projects is somehow connected to a personal experience mm-hmm. or a personal inclination toward a particular topic, right? But besides that, within the literature, the scholarly literature, much of the focus had been within Latin American countries on Mexico and and that makes sense. It's the largest group and there's a long history of migration and of family separation. And so those stories were very different, particularly pre nineteen eighty six. Those stories often were based on a, a kind of circular migration of men who came mm-hmm. to the U.S., worked, and then returned for a couple months or part of the year to be with their families, right. and then, you know, cyclically, right, did this. So the, the research on Mexican transnational families often suggested that this was an acceptable, even ideal family situation without any negative repercussions, and and that did not sound right based on what I knew from from my own family life in the case of Salvadorans I found that there were almost as many women as men migrating and so that was going to allow me to look at how it's not just men who do this but also Mm -hmm. women in the case of El Salvador there's also three borders that people have to cross to get to the U.S. and so the distance made it less likely that there would be cyclical migration in the same way. So that, along with the changing immigration policies right. that Salvadorans had looked very similar for for a long time, all of that helped me to think about the Salvadoran case as a particularly revealing one that would help us understand what a lot of people were living now as the border has been militarized so thoroughly.
0: Right. Right. Can you get into what the economic and social context of El Salvador that makes it so that the migrating the genders of people who migrate are kind of are unique in the sense that, like you said, it broke away from the previously understood archetype of Latin American migration as being the Mexican man who enters the U S for seasonal work and kind of comes and goes. What, what factors made it so that in the Salvadorian context, women are just as likely to migrate as men. So I think that this is,
1: a complex issue and we don't necessarily have all the answers yet, but I can tell you that there are some key things in the Salvadoran case and, and this parallels a little bit with what's happening in Honduras and in Guatemala. But what, what happened there is there are different streams of migration to different places. For example, in the case of Washington DC, we know that it was women who started migrating first because there were US officials living in El Salvador who had hired domestic workers and when they when the war you know oh. really started to ramp up and they left back to the United States they brought their domestic workers with them so mm-hmm. this has been documented that it was women arriving to Washington DC who then later brought their their brothers and partners who were men as part of that migration. In other cases, it has to, you know, we can think about the fact that the rate of single motherhood was already high in El Salvador. And so there's been a long history of women not being able to meet the gendered expectations that required them to be Mothers who stayed at home, right? Right. The economic context did not permit that. So Salvadoran women have a long history of working outside of the home, of being politically active, as part of various resistance movements, because they've been at the forefront of of being leaders in their families. So
0: that well, those two things related the kind of the likelihood of women being heads of household and their increased likelihood of political engagement as well?
1: I don't know what the the literature says on this, but I know that the way people talked about why they got involved in the war, the times that I've had the opportunity to talk to people, it sounds like they are very aware with the situation outside of the home because they have to deal with it to provide for their families. And then, Having access to all of that information makes them want to be a part of what's happening politically as well.
0: That's very interesting. It's kind of like a denial of the private sphere because you it's it's disrupted constantly by state violence
1: yeah and it's not unique to salvadorans and it's not unique even outside of the u.s you can think about the women african-american women indigenous Mm -hmm. women in the u.s who also were negated the possibility of of staying only within the home because of economic realities right
0: In the book, you talked about how Latin American policymakers are considering using remittances formally to invest in national development. Can you speak more on what types of development is contemplated? And can you just explain this economic relationship more and, and the central role that remittances play in Central American economies, in particular El Salvador? I
1: mean, this is an ongoing conversation and there's a whole field of of thinking about the nexus of remittances and development. And typically the thinking is that because remittances add up to such large sums, and they are from year to year reliable sources of funding, these governments think, well, you know, people are getting this money. They often portray the recipients of remittances as being very irresponsible and Mm. misspending their money. And along with that discourse, come up with various ideas of maybe taxing that money or maybe requiring that they put it in certain bank accounts and kind of forcing them to use it in the ways that they would like to use them to create jobs to for infrastructure for the country and those conversations have been not just in El Salvador In El Salvador it's a a big issue because so many of us live outside of the country and continue Mm -hmm. to remit making up a huge part of the the economy and when remittances fall that affects everyone whether you receive them or not because it's such a small country and people are very much tied together migration is really just part of the reality for most people there they they know one or many people who have left and and so the idea that you you want to tax this means that you're taking money that people are making after having to leave the country that didn't provide them the opportunities to stay and to survive there
0: right and using and also taking advantage of the fact that those people who were forced to migrate for labor are then forced into a position of having to take care for folks who are still in no Salvador and who are themselves suffering from an economy that hasn't created jobs, uh, an economy that hasn't invested in the social sector. Right, in a lot of ways, it keeps the economy
1: afloat, but at the expense of those people who have risked everything
0: mm-hmm.
1: to be there. And only because... The governments haven't done their job in, in providing what is needed for most of their people to survive and to thrive there. So I remember maybe a few years after the, the book was published, I remember finding this blog and it was a right-wing blog from El Salvador. I, I want to say that it was called Politiquando, something like that. It had a whole page. It was it was during a leftist administration and it had a whole page of complaints about what the FMLN was doing. And there was one section and it had a picture of this woman looking up at, at a blue, perfectly blue sky with dollars falling. And she had her hands open just receiving the money. And the the title was something like, the one piece of good news is that remittances continue. Wow. And I think about what governments must think, right, about remittances. Here they are. It's actually when they don't do their job that they count on people going because they have loved ones to to care for, going, risking their lives, not expecting anything. And then these governments get free money, what they see Mm -hmm. as free money back, right? So they have a huge... They feel they have a huge stake in that money that they haven't done anything to receive. On the contrary, it's because they're doing a bad job that they get to receive them.
0: Right. These, this is just layers of state exploitation, and state exploitation is kind of the center of the story because, as you outline in the book, it is U.S. military intervention that Destabilized El Salvador during the civil war caused folks to be forced to migrate. Prior to the civil war, you noted that there actually wasn't that much migration from El Salvador to the United States. Right. The the whole region, really. I mean, there's there's
1: been inequalities. It's, it's went through colonization, right? We've we've had a lot of different forms of intervention, and yet people were were looking for work dealing with poverty, dealing with inequality in ways that still relied on solutions that were local and local and within the isthmus mostly. And then it was after the the brutality of the war that people really in larger numbers started to come to the US. Prior to that, we had people migrating, but they were very, very small numbers.
0: Yeah, I'm actually curious about your own personal story since your grandmother would have been in those small numbers, right? Yeah, she came in the 60s. My mom, my
1: family, we came in in 1980. And so there, when my grandmother came, she knew a couple of people, not not very direct family but there, there were increasingly more and more folks coming in the 70s. I would highly recommend, if you haven't come across the book, U.S. Central Americans, there's a chapter in there about folks coming to the San Francisco area in particular in the 1960s that captures some of that. Increasingly, people are finding more and more about longer term histories of central americans in the u.s right i know that people have been coming even before the 80s the 80s is when we see the the much higher numbers but people have been here longer than that
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and actually resonates with my own family history because Mm. my part of the reason why my parents migrated to the u.s is that my dad had some familiarity with California in particular, Los Angeles, because he would come to the U.S. to work sometimes for summers. And so that definitely would have been prior to the 80s civil war. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I'm married to a Salvadoran immigrant as well. And his father, who I got to meet years ago, who lived in El Salvador, when I met him, he told me that he had worked as a bracero in California and
0: mm-hmm. I yeah.
1: unfortunately he's passed away now and I don't I didn't get to ask him all the questions about how that worked how right. he was able to do that but my sense is that there are a lot of these kinds of stories mm-hmm. that we just we need to un- uncover now
0: Yeah I totally agree and it's and actually it's interesting that you mentioned the barrier in particular because that actually is where my family settled Huh Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope someone does that study soon. Yeah, it should probably be me. Talk <laughs> <laughs> about economic, you talked about emotional inequalities, which we've been talking about, but you also talked about the emotional inequalities between transnational families. And I wanted to give—I wanted to ask if you could give an example of such an inequity in the Salvadorian context.
1: Not an area that I wanted to focus on going in because I had been seeing a few studies coming out of the experiences of, of people from the Philippines, people from Mexico that were really centered on the emotional impact. And I, I thought that I didn't want to do that, But once you're sitting there with people and they're crying Mm -hmm. and this is, you know, over and over the experience that you see and hear, it's impossible not to consider how this plays out in people's lives as well. And so the inequalities that I saw there, it's all studies have limitations. And I got to just sit and talk to people one time with each and what I noticed is that the way especially the young people expressed how they felt about the family separation was was not the same right Mm -hmm. boys and girls definitely cried more they used more descriptive ways of describing when a mother was gone than when Mm -hmm. a father was gone they would talk about feeling that they had a hole in their heart and they repeated these kinds of phrases often when a mother was gone they cried multiple times during an interview when a mother was gone and then i realized you know there there were certainly people who missed their fathers quite a lot too but they had a different sense of resignation this this is just oh reality whether the father was sending remittances consistently or not Mm -hmm. they just felt you know this is what men do men get Mm -hmm. to go off and work and they're trying to provide for us or men leave the family right whichever way things went they had a narrative that was already socially acceptable right that made them kind of not be fully okay with it but but not be as devastated as they seemed to be when they were talking about missing their mothers. So there was that end of things. I think family separation is difficult for any child to understand. If you're told your parent loves you and that's why they left, and then you don't get to see them anymore. And you live in a society that really emphasizes the norm to be this heterosexual Mm. two-parent couple, it's painful when you don't meet that expectation, right? So a lot of kids grow up feeling abandoned, neglected, and that is further exacerbated if you're not seeing any material benefits to that separation, right? So kids... Who are not receiving a lot of money, who are barely making ends meet, who are still really struggling economically, are going to suffer that experience more than kids who will say, Yes, I miss my mom, I miss my dad, but look, we were able to build this new bedroom in our house, or look, you know, I got to buy. Uh, a bed, or I get to go to this fancy private school. Um, being able to point to material improvements made the separation more bearable mm-hmm. emotionally for people, because then they can say, "See, that's proof that even though my parent is gone, they still love me."
0: Right. In the book, you're deconstructing the ways that gender kind of defines and informs migration and how women who migrate disrupt, Salvadorian women who have migrated as heads of household disrupt these gendered expectations. And you were just talking about how kids especially will feel the emotional weight of family separation because of this very strict heteronormative understanding of family units and their importance and wanted to ask how queerness played into that and if queer identities of, of children was, was something that you found in your research as uh, informing this gendered analysis that we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one of those things that if I could go back and do the study, I would try to, I'd just be more persistent in trying to find those stories. They're not stories that came up in my interviews and they're, they weren't embedded in the questions already. So there's you know that side of it, but also the people that I spoke with didn't Read the situation as as one that would bring up those things. And I say it this way because doing qualitative research means that you are part of the research instrument, right? You're Mm -hmm. you're read as you're as you're also trying to engage with people. And while a lot of other things came up that I wasn't asking about the levels of violence, I wasn't asking At first, specifically about their legal status, and people wanted to talk about that. They wanted to talk about their journeys of migration. There were lots of questions I didn't ask that came up anyway, but this was not one of them. And I think it's interesting. I've talked to other folks. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Lopez Oro, who is a a Garifuna scholar and who also does interviews for his work. And he started out doing a project that was about the census, how Hondurans and Garifunas identify on the census in Honduras and in mm. the U.S. But based on how people read him and he identifies as queer, a lot of people then shared with him those stories of, of what how they're navigating queerness in this community. And his whole dissertation ended up being about that experience more than, than what he started out with. So there's, there's ways that who we are and how we're read will bring up these things. And so that didn't happen for me and it wasn't something that I I asked about.
0: Yeah, I think that that makes total sense. And I've experienced an analogous thing in the immigration detention world where I'm helping someone with an asylum application and then it never came up that part of their fear of persecution was based on their queerness. A queer legal assistant followed up with them And then the whole story came out. So Mm -hmm. people feel different levels of comfort with you, depending on how you present and sit straight or uh, an instrument of the immigration legal system. There's a lot of things going on. So yeah, I totally understand that and totally appreciate that. I I just wanted to bring that up also because I, I think that heteronormative culture in Salvador is so strong that I, like you said, I don't think a child would feel or an adolescent would feel comfortable kind of bringing that up on their own without being prompted, you know? Yeah. I mean,
1: particularly in that context, I did a lot of the interviews in school. They were wearing right. uniform around, around people that they know. So I, I don't know. I'd say I've been pleasantly surprised in the last couple of visits in El Salvador, just because I got to meet some organizers and lgbt communities and there is a lot of really important organizing work happening around all of this so so there's hope there's pockets of hope in in our expectations that things will change
0: right yeah definitely (laughs) You spoke in the book about migration and agency in an interesting way you talked about the transnational family strategy, which I thought was really interesting framing. And I think that was you trying to kind of reconcile the fact that there are structural forces that urge people to migrate, like
1: Mm -hmm.
0: exploitation of the region, capitalism, U.S. imperialism. But at the same time, right, like individuals do have agency. And this is a choice that people choose to make within those contexts. So I wanted to ask about your choice of that phrase, transnational family strategy, and what went into the thinking behind that. I remember writing the
1: footnote for that because I always felt so uncomfortable with it. It's the term that is used in in sociological work about families and how they make choices and so just these family strategies right and I recognize the agency I think that migration should be thought of as a kind of resistance right because all of the material conditions are set up to not allow most people in the region to thrive, and yet, right, right, people do what they need to do, and migration is one of those options that stands out for people in that context, though. It's also a very violent reality that they have to face, right? Even at this <laughs> point, even leaving their country is difficult, everything is militarized. And certainly going through the Mexican territory is very dangerous Mm -hmm. and getting to the U.S., you're likely to be in detention and still face all kinds of different forms of violence. So I don't celebrate it with an uncritical lens. It is agency, but it's also within a very limited context and people understand it to a certain extent right they think they already know suffering so they're gonna face this trip and get over it because they've already gotten over so much in their life but i don't know how much people really really truly fully understand the depth of the violence that they're gonna face Uh, and that's difficult it's difficult to write about Central Americans in general because of all of this. Because I want to always underscore the structures that that delimit our lives, but without losing sight of the resilience and the push and the, the human dignity that people have in trying to make whatever impossible choices they have.
0: Right. right. And the U.S. has also made these impossible choices quite it's just even more difficult you talk about how salvadorians in particular have had this very explicit u.s intervention in terms of military aid to the salvadorian dictatorship during the civil war and despite that fact Salvadorians were kind of systematically denied asylum protection such that there had to be legal interventions through the American Baptist Church case and the Nakara suit. And actually, Salvadorians have been living in kind of a state of a lot of Salvadorians have been living in a state of precarity because they were protected through temporary protected status. This kind of legal limbo of protection from deportation but little other benefit and you talk about how that all that precarity in particular is also another example of an emotional inequality between transnational families given given the differences in legal relief across countries. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not sure what you want me to talk about with all that. You explained it so well already. <laughs> well, yes. So, temporary protected status, I yeah, think that's yeah. an important category that we should touch on yeah. because there's a fight going on right now. This administration has moved to end temporary protected status, not just for Salvadorians, for Hondurans, for Haitians, for people from other countries. And this has been an ongoing status for Hondurans, for example, since 1998 and for Salvadorans since 2001, mm-hmm. that people every 18 months have been able to renew and and continue to be in what Cecilia Menjiva, a Salvadoran sociologist, calls liminal legality, where they have access to some things, in this case, access to a work permit. But very little else, right? They can't apply Mm -hmm. for legalization and they can't, you know,
0: get in line for
1: citizenship. But what I found that I thought was so interesting was that their children in El Salvador, all they knew, all of the discourse, very much like here in the U.S., Mm -hmm is just you're either you have papers or you don't have papers you're documented Mm -hmm. or you're undocumented and tps is somewhere in the middle and so Mm -hmm. knowing that their parents had a work permit and and could legally work to their minds that meant that they had papers and so to their minds that meant that the parents should be applying for legalization for Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. but those parents couldn't. That's legally not an option. So those kids kind of wondered Is my parent giving up the possibility of us reuniting because they have papers, right? They were so confused, and that was painful. If your parent is undocumented, then you know absolutely. It's still painful, but you know that legally they don't have that option, right? right so right. knowing that there's they, in their minds that their parents have papers made them wonder why things weren't changing for them and for, for setting a legal plan for reunification. Yeah,
0: and so was that also exacerbated by the folks protected by TPS being confused about their options for citizenship and permanent residency, because I can also, I mean, it's like the kids don't understand, but it's also like, do the parents understand? You know, as the person who studies immigration law, I'm still incredibly confused by the myriad maze of immigration laws and who receives which benefits and who doesn't and why. It's super hard to keep track of. So I was wondering if you also saw that on the parent side of being confused about why they didn't have Avenues of legal relief that are open to other people. What I saw on the parent side was a whole lot
1: of hope. So they understood that they were not qualified to apply for legalization right now, but they always have a hope that if they continue to pay taxes, if they continue mm-hmm. to work, if they continue to keep all of their receipts for everything that they've ever paid the government, mm-hmm. that one day this is going to change. Right. So it, it was a kind of. A hopeful maybe confusion about what the future would bring but but they did understand that at that moment they didn't have a
0: path to legalization. Right that makes sense and hope is a discipline and I do admire immigrant parents tenacity in that way my own parents included. I think you have to have it if you are someone who decided to leave
1: everything that you know behind and move knowing that it's going to be difficult you have to hold on to hope right and then also if you're someone who left because you were living really terrible conditions living in the U.S., often feels like better conditions right you maintain a a lens that is much more hopeful i'd say than the children's generation right the second third generations who can more clearly see the racism and all of the structural forms of violence that communities of color live here
0: right right that makes a lot of sense we've been chatting now for a little bit under an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time so wanted to again thank you for being on the podcast and ask you if you feel like we haven't touched on anything that you wanted to touch on
1: i i did mention TPS and that there's an important movement going on right now and i want to i want to make sure that we highlight the national TPS alliance that are working so hard to push for legalization or at least for not ending TPS for all of the nationalities that have it they in particular give me hope right Mm -hmm. because they're in such legally precarious positions Mm -hmm. they are not the kinds of folks who were who grew up and were socialized in the U.S. so they mm-hmm. come with these other lenses through which they see the world and they are able to despite the challenges of working full-time and and facing these legal battles they've been organizing over the past couple of years very intensely and in a very inspiring way so I I want to just highlight that even when people are are in such precarious positions that they have found and this is a recurring theme in the history of of many migrants and salvadorans in particular they've found, they've found ways to really set roots and and define themselves as as people who aren't just buying into the notion of the american dream they're fighting for their rights and for their ability to thrive in ways that they haven't had access to even in their home country
0: yeah that's super inspiring thank you so much for sharing that and thank you so much for being on the podcast and i hope to have you on the podcast again soon thank you so much i look forward to hearing more of your work thank you
1: it was a pleasure take care thank you